Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. I've got a really great Figured Out Baseball podcast for you today. We're being joined in the podcast by Tony Schifano. He's the head coach at San Francisco State, an NCAA Division II team in California. Uh, I'll give you a quick background on Coach Schifano before we get into questions with him. He is a native of Orange, California. He played collegiately at UC Davis, which at the time was an NCAA Division II team. While at UC Davis, he was a three-time all-conference player, his 1995 team advanced to the NCAA College World Series. He graduated from UC Davis in 1997, the same year that he signed as an undrafted free agent with the Florida Marlins. In his playing career, he made it as high as AAA with the Houston Astros. Uh, and then began his coaching career. From 2004 till 2007, he was an assistant coach at Los Gatos High School in California. Then from the springs of 2008 through 2015, he was an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at UC Davis, his alma mater, but by that time they had transitioned to Division One. While uh, at UC Davis, he ran the team's offense and coached the outfielders as well as being the recruiting coordinator. The 2008 UC Davis team went to the NCAA Regional. In 2010, Coach Schifano was actually inducted into the UC Davis Hall of Fame. His 2015 team at UC Davis won 30 games for only the second time since the school had transitioned to Division I. He was then hired in July of 2015 to be the head coach at San Francisco State. In 2016, his first season as the head coach, the team won the most games uh, in program history since 2004. <clears throat> in 2018, the team went to the conference tournament for the first time ever. The 2019 team won the most games again since 2004 and ranked as high as number 17 in the national polls. 2020, they are off to a hot start. They started 14-8. and eight. Uh, before the season was cut short due to COVID-19. Uh, Coach Schifano, I really appreciate you spending some time with us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Thank, thank, thank you for that nice introduction. Absolutely. And, and if you if you listen to any podcast on the website, I'd like to start with something that stands out from the bio. And to me, what stands out is obviously you had your, your playing career, but then you went from being a high school coach to being – uh, a Division One assistant coach, and that's not something that a lot of guys can do. Obviously, you had ties there since it was your alma mater, but can you kind of take us through what happened there to transition uh, to being a, a Division One assistant coach in your first college job? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was extremely blessed. You know, a lot of young coaches have to go through the ranks of director of operations, volunteer coach, and pay their dues. And you know, I, I kind of. I, I kind of believe I paid my dues as a minor leaguer, but um, but it's a little bit different being on the road recruiting and, and setting up camps in the summer and doing all that different stuff. So it was a crash course for me. Um, I was hired in the fall of seven. Of, I should say I was interviewed in the fall of seven uh, because the assistant coach left for St. Mary's College. And so UC Davis was without a second assistant coach. And there was a great group of names on the list that I knew that he interviewed and, you know, having ties to UC Davis definitely helped. Um, you know, we wanted to uh, strengthen our alumni base and, um, and you know, maybe, you know, bring some young energy into the program and, and I think I hit that mold for them. And I was like, when I say crash course, I mean crash course because when, when I got hired in 08 in January, officially, uh, we, you're still in a quiet period. So you can't get out and recruit. Um, and we're not, we're not practicing during that time. So it was a lot of office work, asking questions, calling um, coaches around the, the West Coast that I had played ball with growing up and, and just trying to get an idea of what, what, was, what was expected come March when we could 
recruit and we're in the middle of our season. So, um, you know, we had an amazing team that year. I think we had eight players drafted from that 08 team that went to the regionals. And, um, you know, obviously I did not recruit any one of those young men. And I was just along for the ride that first year learning it. And I couldn't, I guess, I couldn't have been more blessed to walk into a program that was uh, set up to win. Um, and we went to the Stanford Regional and we won, we beat Stanford on Friday night. It was one of the biggest wins in EC Davis history. And unfortunately, we got knocked out of the tournament a couple of days later. But, um, you know, reality sets in. Eight guys are drafted. You know, you're out recruiting in the summer, rebuilding the program. And I think the following year, we won 20 games and we had to rebuild. And I wouldn't have changed anything off of you. Um, you know, I learned what it took to, to recruit and build from the ground up. Um, I looked at that team that we had in 08 and how strong it was up the middle. And that was my goal in recruiting the next two, three to four years. And, and like you mentioned, I think by year 14 and 15, we had, we had built a strong class and we were back up to winning 30 games. And, and I was able to, um, you know, throw that on the resume and, and get, garner some interest from some programs on the West Coast and San Francisco State being one of them. <clears throat> and it's all, it's all worked out really well. Why was building a team and making the team strong up the middle? You hear that a lot, and uh, just for you know, for people that are that are listening to this, uh, that are curious as to why that is sort of a, a trend or or a thing that a lot of teams end up doing. Why is a recruiter and now as a head coach is that important for you uh, when building a program? Why start up the middle? Yeah, you know, for me, it's, it starts obviously the, on the mound. You're, you're gonna you're gonna put a bunch of money and. and and time and effort into uh, the guys that are that are pitching in their, in their rotation. But for me, the most important position is the catching position, and I've held that I've held that belief ever since I was a young player going through the minor leagues. Um, a lot of my coaches in the minor leagues were catchers, and you look at the big leagues, a lot of big league managers former catchers, and uh, there's something about them being behind the plate, seeing the field, um, having a feel for the pitching staff, and the flow and the rhythm of the ball game. And I look back now, 13 years of coaching, you know, eight at UC Davis and five at SF State. And I look back, I could name the top five teams in those 13 years or the top six teams. And every single one of those years, we had a top, uh, a top all-conference capture. That only team had a third-rounder that played for the uh, Marlins and Chief uh, uh, Jeffries. And, um, you know, we had uh, that 2015 team at UC Davis when we – you um, alluded to winning 30-plus games. Uh, Isaac Silva had drafted by the Angels, and you know here at SF State, we went to the we went to the conference tournament for the first time, back-to-back years, and we had an all-conference catcher, Jason Hare. And I don't think it's a coincidence. And it's something about that position that, like I said, the rhythm and the flow of the game, and you are going to put a lot of money into your pitching staff, but if they don't have somebody that they trust and believe and they can throw to. When recruiting catchers or developing catchers, what do you think are some of the most important traits? Uh, you know, what what makes a, a catcher really elite in your eyes? Absolutely, and I don't believe it's the uh, it's the um, stopwatch. You know, you, you know, everybody pulls out their stopwatch when at the showcases for the catchers. You know, their pop times a one nine or two zero or two one. I get the emails from recruits. You know, hey coach, uh, this young man is a Time twenty five, and it, it's it doesn't do a lot for me. I, of course, it shows quick transfer, strong arm strength.
but for me, it's leadership behind the, the dish. It's a uh, it's a guy that that, um, that receives the ball extremely well, walks very well. He's athletic. He's versatile. Um, could care less what his batting average is. He's able to separate four bat bats and understand that what he does with 100 pitches, 125 pitches, receiving them in the, in the ball game and the psyche of his pitchers and relievers coming into the game and knowing the lineup and the scouring courts, that all that stuff is so much more important than, than a pop time to me. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't tell you what Jake Jeffries and Isaac Silva, Jason Harris, all my all-conference catchers pop times were, but I can tell you that every single one of the pitchers love throwing to them love their leadership and their toughness behind the plate. So if, if I could narrow it down to three things, I'd say um, the ability to lead, uh, toughness, and the, ability, and the ability to receive the baseball. Can you talk about that leadership quality a little bit? Um, I know that, that catchers, I think most people familiar with the game, look at, at, at the catching position as one of the leadership positions on the team. But why is it so important that that guy is the leader uh, or, or is a one of your leaders as opposed to, you know, letting letting your shortstop be a leader or, you know, your best hitter in your team regardless of what he plays? You know, why is it so important to have that leadership quality behind the plate? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because everybody's uh, looking at on the field. You have eight, you, know, you, you include the pitcher, you have eight position players on the field, and they're all staring at the catcher. And it's, uh, it's where it starts. You know, I know the ball's on the mound, and they say it starts with the pitcher's hand. But everything starts with the catcher, his signs, it is, um, you know, when he goes to the mound to talk to the pitcher. Um, you know, I, I will tell you, I, I love it when we get to a point where the catchers don't have to look in the dugout for signs, and they and we can trust them to call their own game. And it's amazing the rhythm and the flow of the game when, the, when we have guys that are able to do that. And and our guys eat on that. You know, it's it's when I say leadership, it's not it's not so much. Uh, yelling and screaming and telling guys to, you know, to get in the right position or yelling at his pitcher and throw strikes. It's not, none of that. It's, it's, uh, it's a guy on third base, ninth inning, and that pitch, it's an 0-2 count, and it's a one-run game, and that pitcher knows he can throw that splitting in the third because he knows that the catcher is going to do everything he can to block that pitch. And eight guys watching that, that's leadership right there in, in, in a nutshell. If he doesn't need to say anything, he just needs to bury his chin Block that pitch and give them trust it. So the other 15 guys on the mound, when they come to the game, that they can throw that pitch where they need to. So when you're recruiting catchers, are you recruiting those tools over <clears throat> over others? Just say an offensive tool. Like, is it? Are, are you more apt to recruit a catcher who has the leadership qualities and is a good defender, is a good blocker? Uh, you know, you, somebody that you feel like has a feel for the game. So at some point in his career, he'll be able to call his own game. Are, are those things your primary? Uh, tools for behind the plate and if so how much uh, where do you kind of draw the line offensively you know how good does that guy have to be if he's a plus defender how good offensively does he have to be obviously he's got to hit a little bit to stay in the lineup at least right Uh, but how good does he how much offense you willing to sacrifice for those other tools that you feel like make up are the most important at the catching position that's a great question Jeff it's a fine line I mean you know you there's some guys in our conference that are basically outs at the plate, but they absolutely shut down the running game. And, you know, you're, you're basically stationary, and it forces me as an offensive coach to sacrifice butt more than I want to because we like to run. But if you have that guy that shuts down everything, then it shortens the 
lineup too. Like you said, if it's a, if it's a, if a guy can't hit, you know how 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 much do you put emphasis on the defense over that? You know, I I love for a little bit of a balance. To be honest with you, um, you know we play we play 15 games in a season, four game weekends. So we're gonna you know my guy is not gonna catch all four games every weekend. He, you know he's gonna be worn out by the end of the season. So. You know, I'll sacrifice a little bit of defense to bring in another catcher, a second, third string catcher that can that can bang the ball around the field a little bit, and maybe that and maybe that guy will DH, you know, a couple of games and keep his bat in the lineup. Um, I look for a little versatility. I mentioned athleticism earlier. You know, I want a guy that maybe if he can, if he can catch, and if he's not catching that particular day, he can play first base or I can put him in left field just to get his bat in the lineup. So, you know, I. I I don't look for just defense only in every one of my catchers. Um, I look for a little bit of a variety. Now, if you find that guy that can do both, you know, that's your special player, and we're all going after that guy. I like that. And, and the athleticism behind the plate, as a recruiting coordinator, you know, when, in my time as a recruiting coordinator, that's I, I'd love to see athletic guys behind the plate. I, I, I didn't want to recruit that guy who, you know, could receive well, could throw pretty well, but just was – was so was very slow slow and heavy on his feet behind the plate, um, but I'd like to just kind of ask you maybe a strange question, but how do you uh, when you're when you're recruiting someone can you define athleticism? And I'm asking this for the people that might be listening to this, a, a player or a parent. Um, you know, maybe maybe the the kid or or a parent thinks, hey, my kid's athletic, or a kid thinks I'm a pretty good athlete behind the plate, but I don't know that people always. Uh, know exactly how to define that can you define it i know it's maybe again a weird question but can you define athleticism especially behind the plate and what that means for you kind of things that you're looking for that that you would see the catcher do these things and say hey he's a pretty good athlete back there yeah that's another really good question and i and i i say i ask my recruiting coordinator all the time you know did you see athleticism in his footwork and his uh his body and, and you know it's i don't think it's a black and white answer like if a catcher does one thing or an athlete does one thing, it makes them athletic. Um, but it's, it's, I trust my eyes, to be honest with you, and, I, and I'm staring at their footwork. I'm staring at the way they block, um, uh, how they move side to side. Um, you know, it, 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 and that's pretty much it. It's, it's either a slow action athlete or a fast, quick twitch athlete. It's kind of what I, I'll write my notes. Um, you know, of a, we, 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 we all camps like every other college program and, and you know we'll, have, we'll, we'll do the hitting first of course and guys will bang the ball out of the, out of the field and my, my recruiting coordinators and my assistant coaches will get excited about them and I'll say okay let's, let's wait and see if he shows athleticism during his defensive drills because that's when you see it his defensive drills um, they, you know it's, uh, we, do, we put all of our catchers in our camps through a series of blocking drills um I guess the best way to answer your question is is the way they block because that's that's the that's the quick reactions. You know, leaving your feet and getting down and getting your chest down. Um, you know, these big big old donkeys that that can hammer the ball four hundred twenty feet. Sometimes they can't. You know, block a, a slider when they know it's coming down and down and away. So um, yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough question to answer because it's it's more of been just what I see with my eyes and you know it's not your 669 or things of that nature um, I will tell you this though the catchers I've recruited in the past I, I'm very adamant about 
one is don't they play other sports. You know, if they play basketball, soccer, wrestling, football, uh, any kind of other sport where it shows me that they do have some athleticism and their, and their footwork and their agility. And that, that, oh, that always helps as well. I, I just uh, <laughs> I tweeted about that maybe in the last week. I read another tweet and, and like either responded to that or, or retweeted it with a comment or whatever and just kind of said on these podcasts that I've had, every single coach that we've talked about recruiting and one way or another we get into recruiting guys that play multiple sports, every single coach I've ever talked to has said, I like recruiting guys with that play multiple sports, and I've never had one coach on here that has said, I prefer the guy that plays n- baseball, nothing but baseball. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. You know, obviously that was uh, an unprompted, you know, comment from you. It's just amazing how consistent coaches are with that. And but but yet you still see so many guys that play baseball. You know, nine months out of the year, ten months out of the year, take a couple months off to lift or re- and recuperate, and then back to baseball. And but yet it does. That's not what necessarily coaches want. Um, if we can kind of stick on that for a minute, what would you say to someone who's listening to this who feels like they need to play all year round, A, to be seen, and B, to not fall behind their competition? Because it's it's a natural thing, I think. And I, and I think people play baseball year round with the right intentions. I think they do it because they want to be the best they can be, and they want to see how far they can go in baseball, and they want to get the best – you know, college offer or the best pro opportunity that they can. Um, but but at the same time, again, all of you college coaches are saying, I like the guy that plays multiple sports. So for the family that's listening to this, that feels like they have to play year-round, number one, again, to be seen by as many people as they can, number two, to get as much training in as they can, and number three, to not fall behind competition uh, because the guy next to you that you're competing on, whether it's on, you know, your local travel team or like maybe – there's another guy in your conference who you're kind of competing with in a way to sort of keep up with them, and you know that that person's playing year-round, and, and I think kids can kind of naturally feel like, well, if I play basketball or I play football, that's a couple months away from baseball that this other guy's continuing to play baseball, and, and he's going to pass me up while I'm doing something different. And I think that those are legitimate concerns that people that end up playing year-round have. What would your response to that be as a, as a college coach, just realizing that, you know, Kids don't want to pass up potential opportunities, and, and and again, they're they're I think they're playing for the right reasons, but but from your coaching perspective, it's not necessarily the best thing. How would you respond to a family that that is in that situation right now? Yeah, no, it's a dilemma right now in the country, right? You know, um, the way I would there's there's a lot of different things I'd say about that. You know, one thing is college recruiting these days. There's there's so many dead periods and quiet periods that we can't even go out and see your see your kids play. And, you know, I encourage the kids to, during those times, to, to do other sports, to play basketball, whether it's recreational, it doesn't have to be organized. It's, uh, you know, whether it's, um, you know, playing soccer, working on work, things of that nature. But what it, what it teaches, when you play another sport, it teaches you, um, it continues to teach you to compete. You know, baseball can be a slow sport at times, right? And we're, we all want to, we're, we're all competing. But when you're when you're playing basketball and it's such fast pace, um, you have to compete on the spot, and, and it's nonstop. You know, and, and it also teaches you when you're standing on that free throw line, it's just you and that basket. There's there's something there where you have to. It's a psychological thing where it's going to teach. It's going to help you down the road in baseball. Um, when 
the ninth inning when they're on our second base, and you have to learn to relax and just take a deep breath and get the pitch that you want to put a good swing on. Um, but, you know, parents out there, you know, understand that college coaches cannot recruit 12 months a year. So we're not on the road able to see your, see your players. And I don't know how many coaches, I know I don't do it, but I have never made an offer based on just video, you know, of one attack in a, in an Arizona winter league. Um, that you know, that to me. Um, I have to see a young man play live and to trust and to see every aspect of him um, during the game. Um, you know, and then you know, it's our body. We we have so many. We only have so many throws in our arm, and we you know, it, it's it's a, it's it's good to rest and to and to get in the weight room. And, and I tell I tell a lot of our campers. You know, if you're not interested in playing other sports, and you know, if you're just not a basketball player, if you're not a soccer player, not a football player, you know, invest that money. That instead of going to Arizona for the 14th time in a calendar year for a tournament or for your 12 different showcase, invest that money in a strength training program and give yourself the best, the the, the most ability to to build strength and quickness and and do it the right way. You know, when I was a young player, I. I mean, I was picking up dumbbells and doing curls and no idea what I was doing. I wish I had somebody teach me the right way to gain strength and the right places to gain strength. And, um, you know, I look back and, and unfortunately I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know what, I didn't, I didn't invest my money in that. Um, but that's the advice I give parents is give your, give your kids a chance to play other sports and learn how to compete. Understand that college coaches can not be out recruiting all the time to see your, your kids play and invest in strength training to uh, when, when we are able to see you you're at your best you're your strongest you're your most fit and, uh, and it gives your and that, that will give your son the best opportunity to, to gain a scholarship love that great perspective and uh, you know just to address a couple of things there the strength programs if you're listening to this and you're interested in strength programs and getting stronger, but you don't necessarily, you don't have a plan. If you go to the gym and you, you, know, you can't or don't want to pay for a personal trainer at figureitoutbaseball.com, there are three uh, different college strength coaches who have written out programs uh, for players to use, and and they're different. They're all different in a way. Some of them, you know, if you have a full weight room and you're an advanced, more of an advanced. Uh, uh, athlete in the weight room then there are programs for you if you're a beginner have never used weights before just want to do some body weight stuff as a, as a younger kid uh, there there are programs for you there as well and again there are full downloadable programs uh, you know as a as a high school coach I was a high school head coach for one season before figured out baseball before the website launched and, and I I didn't have time to do it after that but uh, but after I, I left college ball I was a head coach in, in high school for uh, two falls in a spring and, and as a high school coach, you're all of a sudden a strength coach as well, and, and as well as the hitting coach, pitching coach, infield coach, outfield coach, right? You're you're everything. And at that time, you know, luckily I had um, I had old strength programs when I coached in college to draw on. But for high school coaches out there as well that are that aren't sure or have to make up their own strength program or all they have is a football strength program, I think it's a great resource as well. Uh, but to go back to your answer, coach, about you know what kids should be doing. There are so many benefits from every other sport that you hear coaches talk about all the time. You talked about some of the benefits of being on a basketball team. You know, another thing about it, being in a basketball team is you don't have time necessarily to think about your last 
over, right? As a hitter, you, you're, you're out and you have probably two to three innings to think about that. You have time on defense to potentially think about that. In basketball, you're, you're going from one play to the next. So you don't have time to think about it, and I think it helps to teach kids that skill. Uh, obviously, you have footwork and hand-eye coordination stuff with basketball. As a soccer player, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I know that as a growing, growing up as a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, like Jack Wilson was a really good shortstop for the Pirates for quite a while. And, uh, you know, he attributed his footwork to playing soccer as a kid. You know, coaches comment all the time about football players, about how they don't need to be afraid to, to be tough on or to kind of yell at a football player because you, you kind of know that if a guy played high school football, he's been yelled at before and, and he's come back from it and he's okay. He doesn't, he's not going to fold under, you know, not going to fold if you, if you get tough with him or uh, have some strong words for him or whatever. And there are just so many benefits from playing all these sports. And I'm sure you see that as a head coach. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one, one other thing I'll add to it is, you know, it, it's getting more and more difficult to play professional baseball these days. You know, I mean, everybody saw that the Major League Draft got cut five rounds this year. Now that's obviously because of COVID. And, but I know that they've been looking for years to cut the draft down from 40 rounds to 20. And who knows, this might just be the start of it. And so it's a lesser and lesser chance now to get drafted. Um, so you, you have to be extremely athletic right now to get to get attention from scouts and the minor leagues that they're cutting minor league teams left and right so the point being is it, it's getting more and more difficult to become a professional athlete and it, you've got to give yourself every opportunity to be the, to, to gain strength and gain quickness and you know going to showcases all year round you're just going to tear your body apart you have to take a break you have to build your body back up the correct way and, you know, one thing we just mentioned is the diet. Is the diet you can get the weight room as much as possible. But if you're not eating correctly, you're not putting um, what you need to in your body, you know, you're not going to maximize your, your potential. And, and the last thing I'll say, Jeff, is, you know, I bet if we did a poll of all the big leaguers this year, um, how many guys played another sport when they were growing up, I would, I would assume it's going to be close to 75 to 80%. I can't imagine that no more than uh, 20% of big leaguers just played baseball only growing up. I would have to agree. And I know that at some point in the past, and God knows when it was or, or who tweeted it, but again, to kind of refer to Twitter, I know that I've seen something before about, heck, it might have been playoff. Of, of all the guys that were in the playoffs, X number of guys played multiple sports in high school. Somewhere along the lines, I saw it, and it was a big number. And it made it, and it got some legs on Twitter, kind of like what you just to say what you just said, like, hey guys, this is real. Like as a young kid, these big leaguers played multiple multiple sports, and we're not talking about guys that grew up in the '80s and '90s here. I mean, we're talking about you know 25 year olds that that weren't that were in high school within the last 10 years um, that played multiple sports. So yes, it's it's certainly something. And and when you hear guys like yourself. And other other current college coaches that are still saying that I'd rather recruit a multi-sport guy, it's uh, it's hard to deny that that's that's a great way to go. Um, Absolutely. One of the things that you just mentioned, well, a few minutes ago now, that your team, if you have a shutdown catcher on the other team, you you guys will sack bunt more uh, than maybe you'd like to, and, and that you also like to run. And those are two things that. Uh, that seem to be dying at certain levels of baseball, the sack bunt. And you have a lot of people that are, that are pushing 
for the extinction of the sack bunt. Uh, you know, stolen bases, at least at the major league level, um, it seems like really only if it's a, a 100% sure thing because, I, I don't know, the, the pitcher is extremely slow to the plate or whatever it may be, or unless you're a guy that has a chance to steal 40-plus bases in a year, it's like that nobody runs anymore. Uh, there's very little action in a major league game. But at your level, can you kind of talk about at your level why you still believe in the sack bunt uh, and what situations, and then, and then we, maybe we can get to stolen bases after that, but at, at what points do you utilize the sack bunt in your offense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I've been influenced by some great coaches over the years. I, uh, I grew up in Southern California, and I grew up going to Angel games, but I also grew up going to Cal State Fullerton games. And Augie, uh, the great Augie Garrido, um, you know, unfortunately he passed away a few years ago, but uh, I, I, I idolized him growing up and how he coached and managed the ball game. And he, and he was and he played for a lot of innings. He truly believed if you, if you the leadoff guy got on, no matter who was coming up next, you brought him over, and you put that pressure on the defense. And if you could, and you build the teams on pitching and defense, and you know if they could get three or four of those runs across a game, they were going to win forty games a year, which they did in multiple national championships. And he did that in Southern California, which is a hotbed for um, baseball players. Um, you know, and then later on in my career. Um, you know, I, I, there was no value in it in pro ball. We didn't bunt that much in pro ball, so I kind of, you know, got away from it. But then when I got in, back into coaching, um, there's a coach. He's, a, he's at the University of Washington right now, Lindsey Meggs, and he was he was the head coach at Chico State when I went to UC Davis. And uh, you know, he believed in the sack bunt, and, and I remember as a player always, you know, trying to defend it and always feeling pressure that runners in scoring position seemed like every other inning. And I just remember that as a defensive player. And um, years later, I'm at UC Davis coaching, and we're, and we're playing University of Washington. And it's it's probably the seventh inning, and uh, we're up maybe four runs, and they got a they have, they have a guy or two on. I think we're up maybe five runs, and they have, they got two guys on and nobody out, and they're three hitter up, and they they sack one them over the two guys over, and I remember Doug out going, "What are they doing? You know, they're down five seventh inning. Not let their three hitter hit here. But all he was doing was putting him putting his team in a position to to either tie or win the game later in the game. And so he they got they got two guys over. If they sit from the four hitter, now they're only down three. They got they tacked on a run in the eighth and then the ninth inning they um, you know they got this they got the, the tying and the winning runs on base. But I, I just I remember being across the dugout across the field, excuse me, and uh, thinking, God, that is, that, is, uh, that is smart baseball right there. And I'm going to, you know, always take use that and remember the back of my head. And I remember uh, my first year at the State, we, we were down five in the seventh inning, got a couple guys on base, and I sacked them over. And I remember uh, hearing some rumblings in our dugout, some of the fans, like, what is he doing? <laughs> but uh, but what, what it does is, and, and I'll tell you what it does, it, it it teaches it teaches um, every single player in your team that they humility. It teaches that nobody is above anybody in the lineup, and it teaches sacrifice. And you start to when you start to see success in your team, and they, they see what you believe in as a coach, and then you do start seeing success, then they start believing it, and they start getting behind each other, and they start pushing each other to get their butts down in practice, to get their butts down in 
that Bobby Garrido ran in the 80s. You know, I, I believe in the sack bunt. I believe in the value of the, of the threat of a bunt. But I allow our guys to swing the bats probably, you know, early in the game, the first five, six innings. But they have to have the ability late in the game to get a big bunt down. You know, and I always tell our guys, we're going to recruit pitching, we're going to recruit defense, which means we're going to be in every game, a majority of the games. We're going to be, it's going to be close games, and that bunt late in the game is going to make a difference. I think between winning a conference, you know, a big conference game or a conference weekend or, or even a conference tournament. Um, I, will, I will tell you this, uh, you know, it's not just a sack bunt too, Jeff. It's, it's the ability to squeeze, the ability to safety squeeze, the ability to drag and push. And now it just opens up your entire offense. You know, um, my first two, three years at SF State, we funded a lot. And I'll tell you what, the last two, three years, you know, the scattering reports are getting around. As you remember as a college coach, it's all about scattering reports, right? And, and it's in that little section on the bottom of the scattering report says team tendencies. And I guarantee SF State's team tendencies across the board says, loves to bond, look for the push, look for the drag. And what that does is it brings corners in, it opens up the field for our hitters, and it gets us more fastballs. And we've seen our, our teams the last two years, I've gone a little away from the bunting, and we have put up some big numbers offensively the last two years. And, uh, and I, I really attribute it to you know, the success of, and the trust our guys had the first two, three years with the short game. But um, it, it's, it, you know, with regards to running, our guys, every single one of our guys have a green light. And I, um, I, I, have, I have a sign that cuts them off from running, you know, specific situations where I don't want them to run. I'll, I'll shut them down. But I want them, every single one of my guys, to believe that I have the confidence they can steal a base. And uh, we work on it quite a bit. Jumps at second base. I, I still believe third base is the easiest space to steal. Um, you know, pitchers are... <laughs> they get in the routine and they, they're creatures of habit and they don't like the pick. They just want to get aside and pitch and I believe we, you know, we will take advantage of that as much as we can. But uh, we, we run like crazy um, to a fault sometimes where I do have to tone, tone it down a little bit. But I'll, I'll tell you, that's a long-winded answer, but I'll tell you one more thing that's really helped and there's a lot of young coaches out there is you got to get you got to take away the fear of getting thrown out. To me, too many coaches get upset when their players get thrown out, and now they, the effect of that is the player is now scared to run. So what I do in the fall is everybody has a green light. I don't put the I don't put, I don't put the stoplight on anybody in the fall. But if they get thrown out in their squads, they go back to first base or back to second base, wherever they came from. And we just we we don't treat it like there was an out. We whatever happened at the plate with the pitch, if it's a ball, it's a ball, and we and we and we. And we do over. So now that player is going to go back to first base and say, okay, why did I get thrown out? Uh, not a big enough lead. Uh, my jump was slow. Things of that nature. But instead of thinking, going back to the dugout and having the coach saying, why the hell did you run there? What, what, you, know, you can't get thrown out in this situation. Now they're back at first base. It's more of a positive thinking, okay, how could I have been a better, how could I have stolen that base? And, and things of that nature. So uh, I apologize for the long winded answer. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully that, that little nugget helps some coaches out there. No, no, don't apologize at all. That That's kind of what we're, we're looking for. I mean, I want the, I want the in-depth answers. I want people to be able to learn from these podcasts. Yeah. So I think those are great. Um, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it, 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 here's the thing. It, it, 
I think too many coaches out there, and I, and I was guilty of it early in my career, trying to be a cookie cutter coach. You know, I want to, I want to have the lineup or the, the first, the leadoff hitter is my fast guy. That's my two hitters, my butter, my three, four, five hitters are my big hitters. You know, it, it, recruit to recruit to the lineup that, that that you believe in as a coach, um, and and that, because that's what you're going to practice every day. And you know, I this past year. Uh, these past two years, I should say, I put my two best hitters in the one hole. And you know, it, it just hit me, you know, with four games on a weekend, that's four extra at-bats for my best hitter. You know, and instead of just putting a, you know, maybe a little slot hitter that's getting on base 35% of the time, I put, I put my, my big donkeys there that can hit doubles and, and give them four extra shots in a weekend to, to drive some runs in. And I think you're seeing that across the board. Um, all around the country now, and, and you know, with, with analytics and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, young coaches out there, you know, be you. You know, trust what you believe and recruit that way and coach in that way. Coach, there are a lot of people out there losing their minds over your answers to this point. Because <laughs> a lot of your answers are non conventional, but like you said, you. you can't coach at a high level and be worried about what other people are thinking or coach like everybody else coaches you, you can't be influenced by what other people want to do or say you should do you've got to coach with what you believe in and what you believe is ultimately going to win and, and just to be dumb you know on a, on a simple side of things you win you win by scoring one more run than the other team you don't win by by following any any particular someone else's formula right you you win by just finding some way or another to score one more run than they do and and however you do it is okay at the end of the day so i, I love that i think it's a great lesson for a lot of people absolutely Chuck. I, I was on a podcast recently with some great coaches i was doing more listening than talking and the great jerry weinstein i'm, I'm sure you've heard jerry weinstein he coached sack city for 25 30 years out on the west coast sacramento city college who was a powerhouse in the 80s and 90s and he's now a professional coach um, a, a catching guru and it was funny somebody on the podcast mentioned that he went with pitching and defense and, and Jerry Coach Weinstein um, says no that's not right you actually win with pitching and, and a great offense <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta score runs and I had never really heard anybody say that before you never, you know, we, we, we all grew up pitching and defense like championships and he, uh, he threw out that little nugget of nah, good pitching and a great offense like championships so, that, that's a debate that a lot of people would love to get in on, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a changing game. It, it, it's different than when you and I grew up. And, uh, you know, I, I hear, you know, I, there's coaches out there that complain that kids have changed, you know, and, and the game has changed, and, uh, you know, and, they're, and they're slow to change as coaches. But here's the thing. I don't call it changing. I, I think it's just adapting. You're adapting to the times and adapting to these young men and, 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 and being open-minded. Like I mentioned, you know, Lindy Mix, you know, the, the head coach of Washington, I stole that from him. You know, I'm going to butt late the game down a lot of runs, and, and I, I was open-minded about that, you know, and, and I and I watched Augie Garrido didn't do what he did for so many years, and, and Larry Lee and Cal Poli San, San Luis Obispo is, I think, one of the greatest hitting coaches in the country. And I go down there for about two, three days every summer, and I just uh, pick his brain, and he's and he's, and he's willing to give me all his drills, and I bring those drills back to SS State. And no means I, the, do I think I have all the right answers, but um, 
I have my experience I build on, I, I take from, but I also am open-minded and, and try to learn as much as I can from other coaches. I think that's important for all young coaches out there. And it's great to hear someone with your experience say that, that you're, you're not afraid to admit that, you know, but by saying that, you're essentially saying, I'm willing to admit that there are things that I do that probably aren't perfect, and if I find a better way to do it, I'm going to do it. And I think a lot of guys don't have, they have too much pride to say that or, or to really make adjustments in what they will do and, and how they're going to coach a team. Uh, but in your experience with your players, do you feel like if you, you know, from one season to the next, you change something, you change how you do something, how you coach something, change a philosophy, add, subtract, drills. Do you think that it, it, it's, from your experience, do players look at that and think, boy, he really didn't know what he was doing last year, and, and you kind of lose him that way? Or do you think players, uh, just how they react, do they do they like the fact that you're willing to, uh, you know, to have that tough conversation with yourself, really, and, and, and adjust from year to year and try to get better? Like, what, what's a, what are honest player reactions to those type situations? That's a fantastic segue, Jim. And I was actually going to um, tell you about how important it is to listen to your players. And, um, you know, it's we've had some success the last three, four years, and I truly believe it's because I've been open-minded and, and listened to my players more. Um, each each year at the end of the season, I have a, at the end of the season meetings, exit meetings with my players. But I also um, bring all my seniors in, and I, I ask them, you know, how was your experience here? What could have been different? What could have been better? And and don't worry about my feelings. Let me know. And it's been unbelievable to to to, to learn and to hear how how much they care about. Well, a they care about the program and they want it to be better. But how much um, thought and and perception they have on how you know how the program can be better. And I'll give you an example. Um, they were, I guess, the first couple of years, the guys were a little nervous to come to me about the music at, the, at, at their BP. And I was, I'm a big country fan and country music fan, so I always had country music, and I always thought it was the safest music. You know, I, I don't want any um, any uh, you know, cursive words, things of that nature. Non-family friendly. Adults. Right, exactly. It's always about, you know, country talking about your truck and your, <laughs> your dog was the safest thing in the world, right? So... Um, but it didn't bring the energy that they wanted. And, um, you know, it took a couple of years where finally a couple of seniors came up to me and said, hey, coach, can we, can we talk about your, the music or your BP? We, we made it, we made a, a demo. Can we uh, play it today in practice? <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you what. I, I now, my, my serious radio, my Pandora, has today's hit for hip hop. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love it, and I learned some new dances. And they, you know, they, they've tried to get me on TikTok, but that's not even happening. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I'll tell you what—I'll I'll tell you what I've done, Jeff. I've—I've um, I've instituted music at practice now. Uh, we have a three-hour practice. There's probably music at least two to two and a half hours of practice, and, I, and it's not very loud. We, we turn it up during batting practice, of course, but it's—it's—it's—it's—you it's, it's, can hear it in a very subtle manner. Um, I make sure, like when our, my coaches are coaching drills and stuff, that the music isn't, you know, over over their voices. But it's amazing when you're doing a buck defense and you have a little bit of rhythm going with music. How that how that uh, parallels the, the rhythm of the bunt of the drill you're doing. And you'll see some guys kind of maybe move around their shoulders a little bit, and, you know, at shortstop. And you know, they hear the music, but they're focused on the drill. And it, it has been phenomenal. 
Um, you know, and that was a suggestion of one of my players. And then another suggestion was, hey, coach, I know you want to take this program to the highest level possible, but I, I think to do that, our strength training program has to get better. And um, I took I took it to heart, and, and I invested uh, my time and some money over the summer, and two summers ago, and I learned as much as I could about strength training and diet and nutrition, and, and we instituted our program the last two years, and it's been phenomenal, the, the difference, and the feedback from the players has been phenomenal. So yeah, you have to be open-minded and trust your players, because when you trust them, it's, it's, it's incredible, the amount of trust and, and um, effort and competitive spirit they give you, um, and they know they know you, you you trust you trust and believe in them. And, it, and the last thing, Jeff, I'll tell you with the players, it's a word I've used quite a bit in the last few years, and it was a word that I had never really used with my players. But um, you know, in conversations, was I, I, I tell them I love them and how much I love them and, and how, how important they are to me. You know, and uh, I will tell you this: from 08 to 15 at UC Davis, um, I wasn't comfortable saying that because I was I was only focused on being the best recruiter in the, in the West Coast and, and seeing every player and, and trying to, you know, get, get us back to the regionals. Instead of putting the majority of my focus on the players that we had and the family that we were building. And I, and, and I, you grow and you learn as a coach. And um, there's no regret to, you know, how I used to coach because I think we all, you know, uh, learn and, and grow throughout our lives. But the last three or four years, Use the word love is, is really, really brought um, our program closer and our players closer together, and there's been a lot more trust, and I think it's shown on the field of success. That's really great insight, again, for young coaches. I, I really hope that they will take that to heart. Um, if there's anything that I could go back and change about my recruiting career, because I, I left college baseball when I was 30, um, and I was a Division One recruiting coordinator at the time, and I know that I put a lot of effort and and time and thought into, you know, who is going to be on campus next year, two years, three years from now, and I and I wish that I had spent a little more time. Obviously, that was my job was to kind of look at the future as a recruiting coordinator, but I wish I had spent more time you know, developing relationships with the guys that were there. And I think that, I think that I probably, you know, I could have done a better job uh, with that. And I think that the players missed out on something there by, by, by having one, you know, one coach on staff who wasn't always present. Now I, there were times I missed games. I missed practices to go recruiting. And I thought that's what I had to do to be the best uh, at the time and to see as many guys as I could. And I think that they understood that, but I wish that when I was there, I wish I had taken, I had spent more time instead of talking about their baseball life. I wish I had just spent more time talking about their personal life and trying to just get to know them a little bit better instead of them, the baseball player, you know, get to know who they were off the field. And I think that would have went a long way with guys. I don't know if that would have turned into more wins or not, but I think it would have turned into, you know, better relationships. If I look back at my career now, I had the best, the best relationships I ever had with players was when I was a Division One volunteer. Because as a Division One volunteer, you have the least amount of responsibility on the team, and you also spend a lot more time sort of in the trenches with players almost, uh, especially the, the one volunteer job I had was at Winthrop, and part of my gig there was I got paid by the maintenance staff on campus 
to maintain the baseball field. So that was, you know, that was my, my primary job. I took care of the field. And there were a lot of days when a lot of players would come out and work on the field with me. And, and we would just be out there kind of, you know, kind of as equals working on the field. And it wasn't like uh, I was in a superior position to them. And I had a, a lot of really good relationships with that team. And then, but when I, when I transitioned to be a recruiting coordinator, I felt like, honestly, I felt like I didn't want to, I didn't want to be like their friend. I didn't want them to look at me as a friend because I felt like I had to treat it like a business, you know, like a, like, like a money ball situation where like, you're not their friend, right? Cause you might have to have a tough conversation with them someday or whatever it may be. So I did that on purpose. And looking back at that, I wish I had gone the other way and just, allow myself to be who I was and, and allow myself to have a relationship with players without, you know, without worrying about how it might look. I, I was a young coach as well. I, I kind of started that as my, my first recruiting job. I was 23 and I took a recruiting job at a junior college. And at that time I thought like, I really need to separate myself because I'm so, so close in age. I want them to know that I am coach Stanek and not just Jeff or, or whatever. And, um, and I kind of carried that with me when I was a recruiting coordinator. And, and I, I guess, again, I just wish that I had, if I could go back now, I, I would treat it differently. Regardless if I was the head coach or, or recruiting coordinator or a volunteer, I think I would treat it kind of the same way where the relationships with players would trump everything else. No, absolutely, Jeff. And, and, but it's like anything in life, right? If we go back to high school, there's things we change. Go back to our 20s, there's things we change. And the important thing is to, to, to recognize it and learn and grow from it. And, and you know, one thing, I, I, I got a really uh, fun little story for you. Uh, well, two of them. This Sunday, I'm going to a wedding, and it's uh, my closer from uh, four years ago. And he was, he was inherited into the program at SS State. When I got the job, he was already signed. And he was signed as a starting pitcher. And um, we butted heads the first year because I didn't think he was a starting pitcher. You know, I, didn't, I didn't recruit him there, and I, I, but he had, he had a good, he had a good fast point against slider, and that was it. And I said, "You're, you're a closer. You're, you're going to be our closer for the next two years, and and you're going to be in, in, an all conference closer, I believe." And he ended up being an all conference closer. But, uh, but you know, that first year we butted heads, and um, you know, I was, I was trying to be that tough, you know, that tough coach that first year, and then that second year, you know, I opened up to him and told how much I respected him and, and cared about him and loved him and as a human being and, and um, you know he knew he wasn't going to go play pro also our focus was you know after this particular season um, you know graduation what was the next steps in his life and he ended up getting uh, going to grad school at SF State the NBA program I helped him get into the NBA program and, and he just graduated from it getting married this Sunday and, and, I'll, and I'll get the wedding and, and for me that's that that getting that invitation to the wedding was was more special, honestly, than maybe you know the, the ten games he saved when he you know we the ten games we won that he pitched in. You know, it's uh, it's, it's there'll be I think there's going to be six to eight other players there um, that that were on that team, and it's going to be special to see those guys. And, and those are the things that are the most important things to me. And has has I will say probably saved my, myself and my coaching career. Um, and you know the last story I'll tell you is uh, uh, five years ago I recruited a young man uh, out of the out of the Bay Area to go to UC Davis. He was a lefty and uh, great pitcher. Unfortunately, I didn't get to coach him because I left that summer for 
SF State. So, uh, but I recruited him for two years, signed him to Davis, and and I just watched his career from afar. And I, I, I went, I was at UC Davis, I was on campus for something um, about a year ago, and we ran into each other in the bookstore. Uh, and so I think I was buying a hat or something, and, and we sat there and talked for an hour about his career at UC Davis. He was getting ready to graduate, and he had mentioned to me that he wanted to be a chiropractor, and that was his lifelong dream, and he's going to be able to attain that now. And he was so thankful for the bringing him to UC Davis and, and whatnot. Well, anyhow, fast forward, uh, this, this past fall, I'm recruiting a young man out of the Bay Area, and his father is the chiropractor for the San Francisco Giants. And we create a great relationship during the recruiting process. Unfortunately, the young, the young man chose another school, but I stayed in contact with the family, and I mentioned to the chiropractor that I had this player five years ago, and he wants to be a chiropractor. And he said, Tony, give him my phone number, and I'll take him to lunch, and I'll get him all set up with his career. And it's just amazing. It's just amazing, the relationships, how it became full circle five years later. And and, that, and and I think I think I put them in contact with each other, and I think they were trying to have lunch around this, you know, around the, the COVID nineteen deal here with the restrictions in California right now. But uh, but at least they'll get together, and uh, maybe this will be the start of a great career for them. But uh, yeah, those are the kind of things that I I marvel in, and I I just when I close my eyes at night. It makes me happy that I can be part of that. That's amazing. That's such a great story, and that's. You know, as I kind of get older, and I'm still fairly young, I guess, but as I get older, it becomes more and more apparent to me that you've got to do things for the right reason, and most of the time, the right reason to do things is when you is to focus on somebody else besides yourself, you know, to make other people the focal point of everything that you're doing. And if you focus outwardly instead of inwardly, you're you're probably going to end up doing the right thing most of the time you're probably going to end up creating great relationships without even necessarily setting out to do so um and, and i think you'll end up be, being invited to a lot of weddings and and helping a lot of people start their careers so i think there's there's a tremendous amount of insight there so i i, be, I definitely appreciate your perspective this is uh tony Schifano, everybody he's the head coach at san francisco state uh in in division two in california coach Schifano, this has been amazing one of the more enjoyable podcasts I've done this hour has flown by. Uh, I sincerely appreciate the time you've given and uh, and just appreciate you taking part in the podcast. Oh, it was fantastic, Jeff. I've been looking forward to being part of your program. and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my story. I can be long-winded at times, but hopefully uh, there's a few nuggets in there that, that coaches or any, any you know, that young players can, can gravitate towards it. And I'll, I'll throw this out there. If, if, you know, if any any young coach or young player has a question or anything, I'm you know my my information's on our website. Feel free to reach out. Um, you know, I have a lot of free time on my hands right now <laughs> with the quiet period and the non-recruiting period. And and uh, shoot me an email, and I'd love to connect and answer any questions and help anybody I can. Thank you, Jeff. This is awesome, man. If people didn't learn something from this podcast, they weren't paying enough attention. And uh, and I can I can verify that Coach Schifano will respond to you because he and I had no prior relationship. I sent him an email on a whim, and, and here we are on the podcast. And hopefully this is not the first and not the last time we have you as a part of Figured Out. But again, Coach, I want to thank you one last time, and best of luck to you and the team going forward. You bet. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff.